Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nefogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 20th, 2014. I'll begin this week by discussing a possible change in leadership at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'll also provide an update on the extenders bill in the Senate. The Senate voted against cloture last week, so at the time of this recording, the path forward is uncertain. In our new market tax credit segment, I'll share a new guide from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that helps community banks identify and evaluate opportunities to partner with Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs. I'll also discuss the opening of the 2014 application round for the Bond Guarantee Program. And there are five new co-sponsors for the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act in the House. In this week's low-income housing tax credit section, I summarize a talk that Mel Watt, director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, gave last week about the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I share a report from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that explores three different scenarios for making the most of Renewable Energy Tax Credits. And I'll wrap up today with historic tax credit news from Nebraska where the governor recently signed legislation that creates a new state historic tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I begin with a weakened revelation about a possible change in leadership at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Sources are reporting that HUD Secretary Sean Donovan will be nominated to be the next director of the Office of Management and Budget or OMB. When the current director, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, becomes the Secretary of Health and Human Services. President Obama is then expected to nominate San Antonio Mayor Lillian Castro to lead HUD. Castro is 39 years old and has been the mayor of San Antonio, Texas since 2009. And he's currently serving, by the way, in his third term as mayor. As mayor, he's instituted a number of economic improvement programs. These include a series of incentives to encourage investment in San Antonio's east side. That program has spurred plans for the construction of more than 2,400 housing units in the inner city neighborhood by 2014. He's also led the city in establishing pre-K services that are expected to serve more than 22,000 four-year-olds. That over the next eight years. And he led the city in establishing a one-stop center that provides help for college admissions, including standardized test preparation and financial aid guidance. That center, by the way, has helped more than 25,000 students since 2010. Castro is a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School. He's also, as you may know, the twin brother of Representative Joaquin Castro, who represents Texas's 20th district. At the time of this recording, the White House has not officially announced Castro's nomination. 
I'll be following this story closely and I'll tweet updates as they become available. We'll also cover the personnel change in future podcasts. In other general news, I have a somewhat disappointing update on tax extenders legislation. On Thursday, the tax extenders legislation included in the Expire Act in the Senate was added to a tax extenders bill that had passed the House in March and been sent on to the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid then requested cloture motion for the bill. Now, cloture limits further debate on a bill to an additional 30 hours. 60 senators need to vote in favor of cloture for the time limit to be imposed. And typically, at the end of the debate, the Senate would vote on the bill. The cloture motion for the tax extenders bill failed with a vote of 53 to 40. This means the Senate will not be voting on the bill anytime soon. There's less than a 50-50 chance it will be voted on in the next few weeks. Despite reports that the bill had strong bipartisan support, only one Republican voted to advance the bill. Now that's because Senator Reid prevented Republicans from offering amendments to the bill. He used a procedural move called filling the amendment tree, which effectively blocks Republicans' ability to amend the extenders package. In protest, Republicans voted against advancing the bill. When it became clear that Republicans were going to block the bill, Senator Reid switched his vote to no as well. Now, because he voted against cloture, Senator Reid can call the bill up later. In a statement about the failure of the cloture vote, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden said that he would be open to, and let me quote here, narrowly related amendments similar to those added in committee that strengthened the bill, close quote. He added also that he was working with both Republicans and Democrats to find a way forward. At the time of this recording, it's unclear when the Senate would again take up the extenders bill. Most analysts still believe any extenders legislation that ultimately comes law won't become law until after the upcoming elections as part of a lame duck session. That said, I'll keep you updated on any progress with the bill via my Twitter feed and I'll report on any significant events in future podcasts. In New Markets Tax Credit news, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation recently released a guide that helps community banks identify and evaluate opportunities to partner with Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs. The guide is titled Strategies for Community Banks to Develop Partnerships with Community Development Financial Institutions. The guide is broken down into six sections. It opens by describing the purpose of the guide and providing an historical overview of the CDFI industry. It then moves on to organizational structures of CDFIs. Here, it examines key characteristics, including legal structure, regulatory oversight, and lending and investment opportunities associated with CDFI banks. It then moves on to financing approaches, where it describes the types of investments that can support CDFIs. For those of you who are new to the industry, the first three sections will be helpful in grasping industry basics. It's an excellent primer. The fourth section evaluates CDFI partnership opportunities, and the fifth section discusses the regulatory context of these partnerships. The guide wraps up discussing case examples of partnership options. The case examples illustrate some of the most common types of partnership arrangements, and it's in this section that I'd like listeners to pay attention to subsection E. This section is of particular interest because it breaks down the roles of parties involved in a new market tax credit transaction. To read the guide, go to www.fdic.gov.
And if you have any questions, I encourage you to contact my partner, Diana Letzinger, in our Long Beach, California office. In other New Market Tax Credit news, the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund has opened the fiscal year 2014 application period for the bond guarantee program. The CDFI has posted the application documents on its website. The CDFI fund will make up to $750 million in bond guarantee authority available to eligible CDFIs in fiscal year 2014. Under the program, CDFIs will issue federally backed bonds and use the proceeds to extend credit to the CDFI industry for community development projects. The program provides long-term capital to an industry that typically receives only short-term financing. Now before we talk more about the program, I'd like to point out a few of the program's application deadlines. For the fiscal year 2014 round, the last day the CDFI fund will accept questions about the 2014 application is June 18th. Qualified issuer applications must be submitted by June 23rd, and guarantee applications must be submitted by June 30th. The CDFI bond guarantee program directs the Treasury Department to guarantee the full amount of notes or bonds issued to support CDFIs that make investments for eligible community or economic development purposes. The minimum amount of each bond will be $100 million. However, eligible CDFIs can pull together on a single bond issuance as long as each CDFI provides a minimum of $10 million. Now, for those interested in learning more about the program, the CDFI Fund is offering three workshops. The first workshop will be held in Detroit, Michigan on June 2nd and 3rd. The second workshop will be in Washington, D.C. on June 10th and 11th. And the final workshop will be in San Francisco on June 17th and 18th. If you have questions about the application process, I encourage you to contact my partner, Diana Letzinger, in our Long Beach, California office. And to read more about the Bond Guarantee Program, please visit www.newmarketscredits.com and click on the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program link under Related Programs. And as I wrap up today's New Markets Tax Credit segment, I'd like to mention that five more representatives have signed on as sponsors of the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. They are Representative Mario Diaz-Ballart, a Florida Republican, Tim Ryan, a Democrat from Ohio, Michael Capuano from Massachusetts, a Democrat, Democrat from Michigan, Gary Peters, and a Republican from New York, Richard Hanna. That brings the number of co-sponsors up to 46. If you'd like to read more about H.R. 4365 and see the bill itself, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. In the low-income housing tax credit news, we've heard from Mel Watt about the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Last week, the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA, spoke at a Brookings Institute forum on the future of the government-sponsored enterprises, or GSEs. At the forum, Watt discussed the release of FHFA's 2014 strategic plan for the conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I'd like to discuss some of the main points of this plan. According to Watt, the plan is built around three strategic goals maintaining, reducing, and building. The first item on FHFA's strategic plan is to maintain credit availability and foreclosure prevention activities in the housing finance market. This includes extending Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's multifamily loan purchases. 
Walt called this critical to the plan. He said that a number of households that are renting instead of owning in recent years is increasing. The plan does not require a reduction in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's multifamily production levels, and that's good news. And it does also provide additional capacity for affordable multifamily development lending. However, Watt did note that he expects market competition in 2014 to actually lower multifamily levels for the GSEs. The plan also calls for reducing taxpayer risk by increasing the role of private capital in the mortgage market. Under this plan, FHFA will require GSEs to continue using credit risk transfers for their multifamily business. This will result in the private market sharing and potential credit losses. Additionally, the FHFA will explore whether transfers of additional risk can be achieved within the GSE's multifamily business models. According to the plan, this will be done by evaluating whether private capital is willing to share additional credit risks for multifamily mortgages. Finally, the plan calls for FHFA to help build or help encourage the GSEs to build a new infrastructure for the securitization functions. Watts said that the FHFA will continue to focus on creating a common securitization platform that can assume Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's current securitization operations. The second objective is to move the GSEs toward a single common security. He said this will improve liquidity in the housing finance markets. Now, in closing, FHFA is seeking public input on its 2014 strategic plan for the conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. If you want to read a copy of the plan, go to www.fhfa.gov. I should note that a direct question on funding of the Housing Trust Fund did not come up in the Q&A portion of the discussion, nor in Director Watts' prepared comments. However, he did note that as director, he's been drinking from from multiple fire hoses, he said, and I think that was a somewhat indirect or veiled reference to trying to assess the next steps forward with the Housing Trust Fund. So stay tuned, and we have, when we have more information about funding of the Housing Trust Fund, we'll share it with you. In other GSC news, I'd like to note that the Johnson-Crapo Housing Finance Reform Bill has passed out of the Senate Banking Committee. There's no word yet, though, on when, or perhaps if, that bill will actually go before the full Senate. I'll bring you an update when I know more. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I'd like to discuss a new report released by the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that analyzes the value of renewable energy tax credits under different scenarios. The Novogratic Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group is currently reviewing the report and will have more insights in the weeks ahead. That said, the report itself compares the relative costs, benefits, and implications of capturing the value of the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit and Investment Tax Credit in three different ways. In Scenario 1, a project sponsor keeps the tax benefits and applies them currently against taxes owed on other project sponsor business activities. In Scenario 2, the project sponsor keeps and carries the tax benefits forward until into the future, until such time as they can use the tax benefits internally. And in Scenario 3, the tax benefits are monetized through third-party tax equity investors. 
The report concludes that the highest present value from the tax benefits is received if a sponsor can currently use the tax benefits themselves. The report goes on to conclude that for most project sponsors, though, namely those without much tax appetite, bringing in third-party tax equity currently provides net benefits to a project. Unfortunately, the report fails to adequately analyze project finance based on differences in equity and debt risks and returns. The report observes that the size of the net benefit provided by bringing in third-party equity is diminished by the fact that tax equity is currently twice as expensive on a comparable after-tax basis as project-level term debt. Now this observation that equity comes at a higher cost than debt is not a surprise. In project finance, the initial tier of debt capital has the lowest risk and is generally the lowest cost of capital in the financing stack. Second and third tier financing is increasingly more expensive and project equity is the riskiest and consequently the most expensive. Now as I mentioned above, we at Novogratic are reviewing the analysis in more detail and we look forward to providing additional insights in the weeks ahead. You can find a copy of the 66-page report at www.energytaxcredits.com. It's titled, An Analysis of the Costs, Benefits, and Implications of Different Approaches to Capturing the Value of Renewable Energy Tax Incentives. And in the interim, if you have any questions, I encourage you to contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. And if you have your own insights regarding the report, please send an email to cpas at novoco.com with those insights. Next, let's turn to historic tax credit news for a state-level update. I'd like to congratulate Nebraska on its new state historic tax credit program. Last month, Nebraska Governor Dave Heineman signed into law an incentive to renovate historically significant properties across the state. The 20% historic tax credit applies to the first $5 million of eligible expenses for income-producing properties. The credit itself is capped at $1 million per project, and the program is authorized at $15 million a year from calendar year 2015 through 2018. Supporters of the bill say the credit will drive job creation and investments across Nebraska. They argue it will help Nebraska attract developers and remain competitive with neighboring states that also have state historic tax credits, namely Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri. Go to www.historictaxcredits.com to find a copy of Legislative Bill 191, otherwise known as the Nebraska Job Creation and Main Street Revitalization Act. I also encourage you to contact my partner, Michael Kressig, and our St. Louis, Missouri office for more information about state historic tax credit programs near you. You can reach Michael at 314-621-3471. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. 
Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.